As we make our way through the 90s in Australia, we'll talk about important things that happened to the scene. Yes, we'll talk about bands and labels and people and distortion pedals and haircuts, but we will also talk about technology, because technology is intrinsically tied with art. People make art to fit technology. The technology that fit the sound of the 90s was the compact disc, and never has one format been so dominant. Those shiny little discs affected the music, how it was made, how much of it was made, and the success of the bands who made it. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at the CD era. And what you've just been listening to is the ultimate in recorded sound. It will make all conventional disc and cassette systems obsolete. It's dustproof, scratchproof, digitally recorded, read by a laser, and it's called the compact disc. Let's do some history. There is always someone trying to improve music. They are always trying to make it sound better. They are always trying to make it more portable and easier for you to own more. And maybe you could have music that can't be scratched, doesn't warp in the sun, and doesn't have a bit of tape that could get caught and require getting a pencil and rewinding a cassette manually. The CD was supposed to do all that. The CD was made of sturdy plastic. It would melt like vinyl and there was no magnetic tape. You should have been able to run over it with your car and still it would sound pristine. Probably the biggest innovation was that the CD was essentially a digital format. It promised digitally clean music. No hiss, no crackle, no bullshit. This is music the way it should sound. This is music the way it sounds if the record label could stick your head into Bob Dylan's guitar whilst he played it. There would be nothing between you and the music. Digital replication also meant that every CD was the same. That wasn't true with vinyl and, to a lesser degree, tape. Talk to any vinyl snob about the quality of German pressings. Because that German equipment they used was better or the technicians were more experienced, or the materials they used were better. Australian vinyl was okay on the world scale, but there were lots of countries where vinyl records were thinly pressed on tissue paper or something. The CD was different and actually had a legal, technical standard. It's called the Red Book Standard, and like a plane or a car, it had to meet certain standards to be the music equivalent of airworthy or roadworthy. And if it didn't, if it didn't meet the Red Book Standard, it wasn't a CD. That standard was argued, defined and set by the tech companies Philips and Sony, the teams working hard to improve music just for you, and they were the companies that invented the CD. It helps that both were hardware companies as well, and were actually looking to sell expensive new CD players to go with the new discs. It's like inventing printer ink so they could make new printers. Philips and Sony developed the compact disc in the early 80s. It was called compact because it was compact if you compared it to the existing laser disc, which was the same size as a 12-inch record. 
The Philips and Sony teams got their new, more compact disc down to 11.5cm with the capacity to fit one hour of music. But as the story goes, the scientists working on the disc decided they wanted to move to a new maximum duration. They wanted to fit the whole of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony onto one disc. So the compact disc became a little less compact at 12 centimeters, and it now fit a very random 74 minutes of music. That Beethoven story has since been flagged as a potential urban myth, but hey, it's a good myth, and 74 minutes does seem utterly random. And not that 74 minutes remained much of a barrier because they soon managed to get the CD to 80 and then 90 minutes without increasing the size. That technical decision to give the disc more space wasn't just a technical curiosity. It changed how people made art. But more on that later. 1982 saw the first CDs produced, the very first being ABBA's The Visitors. They were first released to consumers in October in 82, and one of the first titles was Billy Joel's 52nd Street. At least, it was in the US. In Australia, though, we didn't get a CD pressing plant until 1987, five years after CDs hit the market in the States. Import CDs were flooding in, of course, and companies would get CD copies of Dire Straits and Michael Jackson from Europe or the US. John Farnham's 1986 breakthrough album, Whispering Jack, was the first CD made in Australia. But that CD was pressed in 87, and you could get it on CD from Europe a year earlier. Australia, we're always a little bit behind with this kind of stuff. The compact disc market up until now has been dominated by the Japanese and German high technology industries. Today's release of John Farnham's latest album by the small Melbourne company Disctronics is the first time this high precision process has been attempted in Australia. Up until now, billions of Australian dollars have flowed overseas to purchase what's fast becoming the music industry standard. When compact discs were normally printed, the money went to Germany or Japan or wherever. Now it gets held here. That, that can't hurt the country, can it? Going into the end of the 80s and the very start of the 90s, music formats were about as fractured as they have ever been. In Australia and around the world, albums and singles, both popular and independent, were being released on vinyl, cassette, and this new format called the CD. And Australia was manufacturing all of them. As we're talking about the 90s, let's take the first number one album of the 90s in Australia, Midnight Oil's Blue Sky Mining. It was released on vinyl, cassette, and CD. Same with the first number one single of the 90s, B-52's Love Shack, released on 7 and 12 inch vinyl, CD, and the good old Cass single. But the record companies in Australia didn't want to have three formats. The country was just not big enough to sustain it, and the major labels didn't want to run so many factories. They wanted to go with one and they chose the CD. Whilst America and the UK were phasing out vinyl and cassette slowly, in Australia it happened really quickly. 1989 saw EMI in Australia close its vinyl factory. In 1992, Sony and Festival also closed their Sydney vinyl plants, the last two vinyl pressing plants in Australia. In the same year, EMI and Warners opened a new CD factory. And that was that. Without any real planning, there were no more vinyl factories in Australia, and the major labels went all in with the CD. And the independent scene had no choice but to just go along with it. The major labels had increased the price of vinyl steadily since the mid-80s, but by 1992, 
they just took the option away. Yes. The price of compact discs is dropping to around the same price as a record. Would that you would you switch to compact discs? Definitely. Yeah. Compact discs are better than records anyway. We've talked about some great Australian albums from 1991. Ratcat's Blind Love, Cloud's Penny Century, Died Pretty's Doughboy Hollow, Club Hoy's Thursday's Fortune, all released on vinyl. And here's some equally great Australian albums from 1992, and a little preview of the episodes ahead. Frente's Marvin the Album, Tumbleweed's self-titled debut, Weddings, Parties, Anything's Difficult Loves, No Vinyl, and they were big sellers on some of the same labels. By 1992, if you were making music, you were making CDs. My family got a CD player in 1993. It was a fairly big all-in-one unit with a double cassette tape deck so you could tape from another tape. That's right, you could tape the CD, tape the radio, but double cassettes meant you can tape other tapes. I don't recall my parents wanting it. I don't think they ever used it. It was more for my brother and me who were pushing for it. I remember wanting one for a while. Maybe one of my cousins already had one. My memory was we were catching up. And with two teenagers in the house, I'm sure my parents thought it was a good investment to keep us distracted. But why did we want one so much? I'm not sure if there's any other reason other than market forces. It's what we were supposed to do. It's how music came now, and we were old enough to listen to the radio, watch chart TV shows, and talk about music at school. So if you liked music, you had to get a CD player. And they were supposed to sound better. Vinyl is physical and the grooves could scratch. Magnetic tapes can degrade. Cassettes, especially the tape part, could snap or come unspooled. But CDs solved all that. They were digital, which may as well have meant they played by magic. Plus, they did this amazing thing of being able to skip a track at the touch of a button, or rewind back to the beginning of a track. And if you were really wild, like one of the guys on Jackass or something, you could shuffle all the tracks on an album. Plus, they looked shiny and sleek like the T-1000 from Terminator 2. It just looked like the future. I'm not sure audio quality and skipping convenience were the reasons my brother and I wanted a CD player. CD sounded as good as the radio in our new home player. I think it really just came down to being the new thing. And by 1993, clearly it was going to stay. If you wanted music, you had to get CDs. Now on to hi-fis and CD players. Sony MIDI system with 5-disc CD player, $994. Technics 1-bit CD player, remarkable quality sound with remote, $398. Sherwood 100-watt hi-fi with CD player, $1,392. And this Philips remote hi-fi system, $697. Time's up, but I've got one big question for you to finish on. Where's the only place you can buy all these products and lots more with a free five-year warranty from staff who really know this stuff? Where? The answer is Brashes. This was true for bands as well. When the album format really became popular in the mid-60s, bands had to change. Suddenly they were asked to come up with 10 to 12 songs every year. But it also meant Stairway to Heaven could exist because there was now a thing called album tracks. I'm still not sure I'm okay with that one, but we'll move on. The 45-minute double-sided album became the high watermark for popular music. It's what people made, and bands made decisions for that format like album covers that look great in that size, and caring about track one of side two as an important place in a record. The CD came along and suddenly bands stopped caring about track one side two because there was no side two. There were new rules now. 
And for my money, there are several ways the CD affected how bands made music, both in Australia and around the world. The most prominent for me is the length of albums. God, albums just got longer and longer. The start of the 90s, they still had to fit one piece of vinyl. Going over meant a double album, which meant double the costs. So you kept it at under 45 minutes and to 10 to 12 tracks. Those early 90s albums that came out on vinyl, your Cloud's Penny Century or your Blind Loves by Ratcat, all fit neatly under 45 minutes so they could fit on any type of format. Things carried on like that for a while. Big albums like Marvin the Album by Frente in 1992 and The Cruel Seas The Honeymoon Is Over in 1993 could still fit onto a single piece of vinyl, although they were never released on vinyl. But ever so slowly, by the mid-90s, bands started to go on a bit. They started to shoot past that 45 minutes and fill up the rest of the disc. As is often the case, if anyone's to blame, it's the Wu-Tang Clan. Hip-hop at the start of the 90s were already coming out with double albums that were released on single CDs. In part because every bloody member of the Wu-Tang Clan wanted to have a turn. And you had all that space there, how could you say no? And all that extra space meant their albums could drift well over an hour. And they smashed through that imaginary 45 minute mark. And soon it drifted into the indie world. Nirvana's legendary MTV Unplugged concert went for an hour, which was no problem. It could fit onto one CD. In the UK, the dancey, Madchester-inspired scene meant early Britpop albums could go on and on. And of course, it made it to Australia as well. By the mid-90s, everything was made with the CD front of mind. I imagine people stopped discussing 45-minute limits and a strong track one side too. Many of the era-defining albums of the decade, in Australia and around the world, were over 45 minutes long. Part of the thinking was, I've been told, a perceived value for money thing. Look, I guess that's true in the extreme. By the mid to late 90s, if you got an album that was only 8 tracks and 30 minutes long, Neil Young style, it would probably seem slight. And I think it became more true for best of collections. Bands could just throw every single they ever released onto one disc. Crowded House's best of, Recurring Dream, released in 1996, runs over 70 minutes. You would struggle to fit one more song on the disc, and they still left off Sister Madly. But more likely the increases in running time came naturally as bands needed more than 40 odd minutes for a set anyway. It wasn't just that the albums got longer, I would argue the extra tracks led to the inclusion of more interesting, experimental tracks every now and then. Firstly, albums by The Whitlam's, Clouds, UMI, Powderfinger, Frente and many others gave people in the bands who weren't the traditional singers a chance to sing a song. Albums by Spiderbait, The Cruel Sea, Regurgitator and many others featured instrumentals. Not all of this stuff was great, some of it was shit. But it's interesting from an artistic point of view. If it was the 70s, the song by the bass player and these instrumentals would be found on b-sides and bootlegs. Then there were hidden tracks. Again, a chance to use the extra space on a CD was something a bit different. The CD being hidden away on the enclosure meant that you couldn't tell how many tracks were on it. So hidden tracks became a cool way, I guess, of surprising fans. Sometimes it was a regular track that wasn't listed on the back. 
but more common it was the last track that mysteriously went for 10 minutes but was actually a normal song that had some extended silence followed by another track that would come out of nowhere. This happened to me with my favourite album, UMI's Alley Daily. I must have owned that album for days, if not weeks, and after the listed 15 tracks, there was silence, and I must have just started again or changed the album. But one day I left the CD on, and out comes this wonderful extra track. It's like finding a new pocket in an old jacket. You can find hidden tracks on some big albums like Double Allergic by Powderfinger and 11th Avenue by Ammonia. Sometimes it was a new track. The Foves chucked on a recent single, Everybody's Getting a Three-Piece Together, on their album Future Spa from 1996. That single didn't do well, so the label wanted to hide it away, but the band wanted it on there and the, and the hidden track was the compromise. Jebediah's slightly odd way ends with the track la di da da with a big sing-along chorus. The track actually fades out, and then there's a few minutes of silence, and then fades back in. It takes that three-minute-something song and turns it into a seven-minute-something song. Why did they do this? I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing part of the reason was they had the space to do it. It's like why people climb mountains. Rom had 36 so-called secret tracks on their album Not So Tough Now from 1996. Each track was four seconds of silence, but they are all listed on the back of the album. The names of the tracks include Secret Track, Secret Track Remix, Secret Track Demo, Theme from Secret Track, Secret Track Radio Edit, and 30 more. That album's track listing is a beautiful monument to hidden track culture. So if the 70 minute plus 17 track album with a hidden track wasn't enough, then there were bonus discs. In the mid to late 90s, the bonus disc was ubiquitous. They started as a retail incentive for independent record stores. Why would you go buy an album from an independent record store like Ogogo when you could buy the same album from Big W for cheaper? But this isn't just an example. Bruce Milne, owner of Ogogo Records, actually told this story that he could go and buy albums from big retailers for cheaper than he could order it from a major. The catch was he was talking about albums actually on the Ogogo record label. One way around it for these indie artists were bonus discs. Look, labels had learnt by this point they couldn't do another Rat Cat and have the indie kids abandon them as soon as they got big. So they needed the support of indie retailers. But they couldn't undercut or match big retailers, but they could offer a version for super fans, an extra disc of stuff that only fans would want. The first bonus disc in Australia was in 1994 and it came with Underground Lovers album Dream It Down. A remix of a single from their previous album, Your Eyes, was still popular at the time of their new album coming out. They didn't want to put it on the new album, but they wanted people to buy the new album. So they took the disc from the CD single, printed up some extra, and put it out as a bonus disc attached to Dream It Down. There were a couple of bonus discs released around the world in 1993, but it really seems like it was embraced in Australia. It wasn't something that happened in the UK very often, or in the US at all. It was a very Australian thing, 
and it coincided with tour editions for international bands. No big international bands toured Australia first. Usually they did the Northern Hemisphere summer and end up in Australia for the big day out six months later. They would add on a bonus disc to make the six-month-old album feel new again. Like hidden tracks, dozens of big albums had bonus discs in the 90s. Albums by UMI, Cordrazine, Ammonia, Powderfinger, Custard and many others came with a bonus disc. And they were usually live tracks or demos, five or six tracks, just something to fill the space. Cordrazine just packaged an earlier EP with their album From Here to Wherever. The one that came with Spiderbait's Grand Slam was called The Dodgy Bonus Disc. That 70 plus minute crowded house best of came with a bonus live disc that was also 70 plus minutes. In the back half of the 90s and the rise of home computers, someone had the smart idea of putting a CD-ROM on that extra space of the disc. If you were to put a CD album in a computer, suddenly an app would pop up. The first Australian band to do it was pioneering indie dance outfit Severed Heads. Despite their aggressive name, the band was run by Tom Ellard, who was a big computer nerd. To go with their 1994 Severed Heads album Gigapus, Ellard created a CD-ROM of accompanying digital imagery. It's the first music CD-ROM released in Australia, and one of the first with original content around the world. The most famous in the 90s in Australia was Regurgitator's Unit, which was rebooted with a CD-ROM of the band's film clips. The bonus disc for Silverchair's Neon Ballroom was an entire CD-ROM documentary of the making of the album. Bands and labels were just throwing bonus editions at you. So you had long albums with hidden tracks, CD-ROM programs and bonus discs. That's a lot of stuff for a band to make. But guess what? We're going to need another 10 or so tracks out of you because we are going to need B-sides. In the vinyl era, a single would come with like one B-side, two max. The CD era, with all that extra space, you could have 70 minutes of B-sides if you wanted to. In the dance world, they filled them right up with every extended remix. In the alternative Australian 90s scene, this coincided with longer album cycles. We go from Ratcat, Clouds, Hard-Ons and bands like that having three albums every three or four years, to Spiderbait, UMI, Powderfinger and Silverchair having one album every three or four years. Part of that reason was that they needed to spend a solid year touring America. In between, you had to keep putting stuff out because you don't want radio to forget you. You didn't have time or funds to go back into the studio to make a new album, so you released more singles from your previous album. So you start getting albums with up to five singles and the album cycle lasting longer than ever. And each of those singles came out on compact disc with three to five bonus tracks. Powderfinger started having four or five or even six songs on some of their CD singles. Their 1998 album Internationalist was an album cycle that had 32 tracks across the actual album, bonus discs and B-sides. 32 tracks. And this was getting common. Bands had to keep unearthing demos and live tracks to fill these pesky discs. I don't think it's a coincidence that so many bands in the 90s had multiple songwriters. Custard, The Foes, Powderfinger, Spiderbait, Regurgitator, The Hummingbirds all had members constantly coming up with stuff because these goddamn shiny discs needed to be filled. I think it's also interesting that there's pretty much no double albums in this era, at least in Australia. 
who had the tracks to spare? I wonder if bands like Clouds slowed down because of the demand for more and more music meant albums became more spaced out. All those B-sides could have just been another album if it was another era. Again, there was interesting stuff happening on the B-sides. Regurgitator put out an 18-minute version of their track FSO just because they could. There were also the usual leftover tracks from studio sessions. Add to it live tracks, cover versions and demos where you could dive deeper into the band you love, or tracks recorded for compilations, soundtracks and tribute albums. For me, I know I spent hours listening to CD singles of the bands that I loved. I particularly liked it when the artwork for the singles continued the artwork design from the album. It all made it feel like it was of a piece. And like bonus discs, B-sides and all these extra tracks were just more chances to fall in love with a band you were probably already in love with anyway. You got to learn what cover versions they did, or how their song sounded as a demo. It was great for being a fan. And I'm actually sad that a lot of that stuff doesn't come out these days. But looking back, it was probably a lot of work. What's also sad is that a lot of those bonus disc tracks and the B-side tracks never made it to digital. They aren't on streaming. Half the tracks from these album cycles just aren't on any digital services. That history has just been wiped. Of the bands I'm talking about in this podcast, there were still the odd vinyl versions of albums and singles released in the 90s. It wasn't common and there were thousands and thousands printed up, so it makes them very collectible. It was mainly out of the UK or Europe. UK labels signed bands like Smudge, Underground Lovers, Died Pretty and Even As We Speak, and it meant their albums appeared on vinyl printed in Europe. Copies were later imported into Australia. Then there are some fun curiosities like Regurgitator releasing a single on Sub Pop or UMI releasing a single on the US Solex samples. Both were kind of niche collectible singles clubs and it's a sign of Australia's contribution to the international alternative scene. Later in the 90s, Murmur Records would release a lot of vinyl. We'll get to the Murmur story, but they released Silverchair singles on vinyl and Jebediah albums on vinyl and Ammonia albums on vinyl and much more. It was cool for music fans, but they couldn't have been making much money on this stuff. But that was the exception, not the rule. Much bigger bands who could have sold a lot of vinyl just didn't care. Smaller, more nimble indie labels also didn't care. It was just kind of random what got made. In recent years, with the recent vinyl boom, some stuff that never came out on vinyl the first time around have finally been released. But what's funny is that some of those single CDs had to be double albums because of those bloated running times. Single CD releases like Jebediah's Slightly Odd Way and Ice Cream Hands Sweeter Than The Radio or Something For Kate's Q&A With Dean Martin, Custard's We Have The Technology, Texton And Charlie's Sad But True and many, many others were all reissued and split over four sides of vinyl. So I said there were no double albums in the 90s, but there kind of was technically and we have retroactively given these albums track one, side twos. Oh, I prefer to have an album because it's so big and like you've got the covers and the posters and stuff like that, so um, that's quite good. Where compact is just a plastic little thing. Through it all, I lived in the CD culture. I upgraded from that family all-in-one to a Discman in the late 90s that would live in my school bag as well as several CDs at any given time. And there was a CD player in my home computer and later a CD burner. 
Pretty soon you were able to play CDs in cars and DVD players and everywhere else. I feel like we are just beginning to look back at the CD era and all the silly things about it. The way the teeth in the centre of a jewel case were the first to break. How we used to be able to buy holders that would let you leave your CDs underneath the sun visor in your car. Or how you could lend or borrow them. Digipacks, box sets, CD disc cleaners where discs came with tiny little brushes on them and so many other long-forgotten curiosities of the era. When I listen to all this music from the 90s Australian alternative scene, whatever the hell that means, it is tied to memories of listening to it all on CD. It's tied to memories of looking at album covers through plastic jewel cases and sliding discs into drives. Flicking through these albums, taking out the bonus disc and CD singles. 1999 was the highest grossing year for music in Australia and the world. I talked about the fragmentation of formats at the start of the 90s, but by 1999, the CD market by then was well over 95%. It was the highest it has ever been for one format since different formats were created. The first number one album of the 2000s was the compilation Beatles One, and in Australia, it only came out on CD. And the first number one single of the 2000s was the thought crime that is Eiffel 65's Blue, which was also only released on compact disc. The CD had won, at least for a while. The first body blow to the CD also came in 1999. Napster, a way for people to share files, came along. It coincided with the new MP3 format and the ability to copy music off CDs. What made CDs so great, that ability for every copy to be digitally identical, became its downfall. Forget home taping is killing music. We're talking about pristine, identical digital replicas. And in the early 2000s, before the iPod, the highest selling CD most years was a blank one. And then CDs didn't turn out to be perfect after all. They weren't invulnerable and plenty of mine got scratched from overuse. And what they replaced it with was the MP3 and you couldn't scratch that. And soon there was 160 gigabyte iPods and the idea of carrying around a couple of CDs in a school bag became ludicrous compared to that. And then streaming made a joke of MP3s and the cycle continues. I've sold off most of my CD collection over the years. I had so many. I threw out my CD cleaning liquids and cloths. Right now, I don't even really own a CD player. There's a lot more to the story of the CD, like the story of copy protection. And that's a story for another decade's podcast. But the CD story is by no means over. In terms of revenue, they were only just overtaken by vinyl in the US. Stores still seem to stock a lot of CDs. And there's reason to believe that the second-hand, collectible CD market is growing. All those bonus tracks that have gone missing... People still want them. And yeah, those discs still sound better than streaming. Or look, maybe it's a multi-format choose-your-own-adventure future for us. Right now, you can get new albums by the hard-ons on cassette if you want. Australian record companies wanted to go down from three formats to one. And now there's vinyl, cassette, CD, downloads, streaming and more. I personally don't miss the CD that much. I miss the booklets and the artwork. But the last time I tried one, waiting for the CD tray to slide out, then back in, then for the little computer to read the whole thing and be ready to play, 
It took ages. I mean, it might have taken five seconds all up, but it was still five seconds. It felt like 10 years. It felt like using a rotary phone. Either way, I think the reports of the death of the CD might be premature. And I wouldn't bet against a CD revival either. In a way, it all sounds too good to be true. Other systems have, heaven knows, failed to live up to their pre-release promises to change the way we listen. Quadraphonic sound, for instance, died of starvation when not enough quad records were released. But with compact discs, we're assured there will be a rolling river of material. Seven major record companies have already signed up to produce on the system. With hardware and software both lined up, compact discs may well rule the roost, at least until someone perfects a method of putting Beethoven's ninth on a silicon chip. Don't laugh. I'm assured that that day, in fact, is not too far off. For a few years, a friend and I tried to write the cultural history of the compact disc. I feel like every year it gets more and more relevant. I might get back to it once this podcast is over, because there's heaps more to say and lots of fun stories to tell. If you want to read a wonderful take on the CD era, I recommend the book Lost in Music by Giles Smith. It's a very funny memoir of a music writer who came of age in the mid-80s. The chapters about the CD being introduced are wonderful. On the website, I'm going to compile a couple of lists. I just thought they are nice to have because I was looking for these lists and they didn't exist on the internet, so I might as well put them together myself. One is a list of every Australian 90s album with a hidden track, and the other is every Australian 90s album that came with a bonus disc. There's probably heaps that I miss, so get in contact if you can think of any. To end, in 1993, the band Sneeze, featuring half a cow stalwarts Nick Dalton and Tom Morgan, released their self-titled debut album on vinyl only. But it was 1993, and the last track was a farewell to the format. So from that Sneeze album, here's the final track, Goodbye Vinyl. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Just Ace podcast, and it's outro time. And I just want to say a quick thank you to the people who turned up to the Mosh Pit Bar this week for my live interview with Steve and Brett from Died Pretty. You can watch it back on Mosh Pit's Facebook page. I had a lot of fun, and the whole night was a lot of fun. As usual, there's ways to support the podcast. Links are in the description. It's a $3 a month Patreon, and there's a straight tipping service called Buy Me A Coffee. Or buy a poster. They've been selling quite consistently as well. Again, links are all in the description. And of course, spread the word. Tell a friend and feel free to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is episode 11. I think you get the support stuff by now. Okay, next week, it's an all-star season finale. Lots of bands return, lots of stories return, even Mambo returns. 
as the 90s Australian alternative music scene has their most important day. Start again. There was actually another weirder and much more annoying type of hidden track. It's technically called the pre-gap track, but it's a hidden track that is hidden before the album. It's an odd quirk to the Red Book compliant CDs that there is this thing called a track zero. It's there as a little flag for CD players. From the start, those Japanese scientists thought CDs could be more than just music, and that little track zero could have some data on it that would tell the player that it was a computer disc or a video disc or some other mad future invention. That track zero though could also just contain music because that was data, but it was a truly hidden track. By the late 90s, many CD players and computers in particular didn't read the pre-gap track at all. There was no way to verify whether it worked. A pre-gap track was like Bigfoot, a rumor. To get to it, you had to rewind at the start of the CD. I would test my discs on several players, the computer, the car, at friends' houses, and it was all no good. Sometimes you'd have to hold down the rewind button, or maybe you needed to be facing west and say Shazam at the same time. Who the hell knows? Considering how much time was spent recording these tracks, and how many tracks had to be produced in the 90s, it was an absolute waste of a track. There weren't many of them in Australian music in the 90s. One though was Jebediah. That band, at their age, they grew up in the CD era. I don't think they made their albums thinking about vinyl or cassette. They liked the CD format. Their 1999 album of Someday Shambles features a pre-gap track called Big Beer War. It debuted at number two in the ARIA charts and sold platinum. That track is there on discs owned by many thousands of Jebediah fans. But because you can't actually hear it, 
they later included it on their rare and b-sides compilation called glee sides and sparities it's there on one of their biggest albums and it's still a rarity that's how hidden that track is here's jebediah with a track you probably own but never heard big beer wall gonna build a big beer wall it's gonna be 15 feet tall build it strong so it don't fall gonna build a big beer wall gonna build a big beer wall wouldn't do to make it small got a feeling it's my call so I'm gonna build a big beer wall big beer wall big beer wall a big bear wall, big bear wall, big bear wall, gonna build myself a big bear wall. 